Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Hey everybody, welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen and I am your host. And happy Easter! I am so excited that you guys uh, are here back with us. The King is risen and the tomb is empty. And we have a special episode for you today. We're, every now and then we'd like to do an episode that's a little bit of a meditation, just an opportunity to reflect a little bit um, on some of the special you know, seasons uh, that the Lord gives us. And here now, as we find ourselves in the Easter season, uh, we have a guest with us, uh, Father Taylor Leffler. Father, how you doing today? Super, Jim. Really good to be with you. Be here on EquipCast and speak to the great people of this area and uh, reflect a little on this Easter mystery. There is so much in the scriptures for us to pray with and, and reflect on. So really happy to do that with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Thank you for saying yes. Uh, so, Father, start off just right. speaking of yes. Talk about the the big yeses of your life. Give us just a little bit about like, right, the story, how you first encountered Jesus. Uh, who are you anyway? I'd love to share. I grew up in Little Nazareth, uh, grew up in West Point, Nebraska, right here in the Archdiocese of Omaha, a town of about 3,400 folks and lived in the same house on Nifon Street uh, my whole entire 18 years of life and um, went to Guardian Angels Catholic Elementary School and then Central mm-hmm. Catholic High School, worshipped at the same altar there at St. Mary's in West Point mm-hmm. every single Sunday my, my whole life. We really hardly ever missed a Sunday. Um, and I mean, it's no secret that Catholic school isn't really enough to evangelize a person necessarily. And I found myself straying big time by junior high and high school. I just kind of thought it was mm. all goofy and, and not believable and not worth my time. I had other interests and things I was looking into. I was in a rock band. Um, I was into airplanes and I wanted to be a pilot. And Is that a thing in West Point? There's a, you are not the first priest to be on this podcast to talk about a rock band coming out of West Point. I'm just saying. Really? Um, yeah. yeah, it was a thing. It was a thing. And uh, you will find no video or photographic evidence of such a thing. So don't even try. Don't <laughs> even try to look it up on YouTube. I'm not going to tell you the name of the band because it's not worth your time. But uh, it was, I remember reflecting on that lately. That was a way, I think, for me to get some of my angst out. You know, that was an, an exercise of energy for me which was good. Yeah. It was, it was good. Music played that role for a while, but something, something else took that role a couple years later. I was um, a junior in high school when I just kind of reached the end of my searching. Really. I, I was like, these things I'm trying are not making me happy. I feel unfulfilled. Mm. Um, my friends weren't always the best influence, nor did I even enjoy being with some of my friends anymore. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of not, not worth it. I just started to pray for new friends. I'm like, um, I just kind of, kind of talked out to the empty void that I thought was maybe God, that there would be somebody on the, mm. on the other end of that. And, um, just said, you know, God, if you're real, send me some new friends. And I tell you what, Jim, our family moved from, um, Napa, California to West Point, Nebraska. Oh, sure. Which happens all the time. 
Yeah, all the time. People come from Napa to West Point. I mean, right. There's I mean, no place like West Point. Because they're, yeah, because they're coming for the, um, um, for, yeah, and that's why they come. Hot dogs, you know, we were, we had a really, Wimmer's hot dogs were all made in West Point before they sold out to some big company. So, okay, uh, that, sure. They come for the hot dogs. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. naturally, um, right. Wine country, hot dogs. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about this family. <laughs> well, there was this family. There was another family from Sheldon, Iowa. And then there was another family from Ramstein, Germany, who all moved to West Point, Nebraska within the matter of a couple of years. I'm not kidding. Wow. Uh, straight up Providence, because all three of those families had a huge impact on my life. It was nothing magical. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was God's providence. And all three of those families were just like exactly what I needed at the time. And I spent time with them and their children and the wife of the family from Ramstein, Germany, they're not German themselves. They were there for the Air Force, but she was the daughter of a Baptist preacher. She grew up Baptist. Her dad's a minister. She met this Catholic boy from West Point, Nebraska, actually. Married him, joined the Air Force, became kind of an Air Force family, and then became Catholic and brought some sort of Southern Baptist flair to Catholicism. She discovered Life Teen and she worked with Life Teen for a while. And then she brought uh, the EDGE and Life Team, the junior high and the high school programs to West Point for the first time. Even though we had a Catholic school and a Catholic church, we didn't really have much of a youth group. So, you know, we'd learn about stuff uh, in, in religion class and we we went through the sacraments and stuff, but there, there wasn't really a youth group or kind of a, you know, um, a conversion engine sort of a thing happening for, for kids in West Point at the time. And she kind of single-handedly brought that to West Point. She she had all of the experience and the resources, but then didn't know any people. But then she met some people who were like, well, we don't have any of the resources, but we know all the people. So they came together and the rest is history. And that's awesome. That was just a huge, a huge movement in my life to have new friends and to encounter Jesus in the Eucharist, to encounter him in the scriptures. I learned from this woman uh, who the Holy Spirit was and, and how to pray can you give her a shout out? Because I know who you're talking about. Oh, totally. Lisa Hunky of West yes. Point, Nebraska. Wonderful woman. We love you, Lisa. We do. Lisa, I talk about you all the time, as I am right now. This fiery, redheaded daughter of a Baptist preacher who brought the fire of the Holy Spirit to my life. And I am forever grateful to her. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, so now you're all grown up. You're a priest associate at well maybe not all grown up but well no grown up maybe not mature but i've got a couple more uh weeks of my 20s left okay so i've got some grown up to do still yeah but you are now uh relatively new priest here the archdiocese you're the associate at saint wenceslas here in omaha very cool Um, they're telling us this is now the biggest parish in the state of nebraska I believe it. Although there is some, there is some debate. Probably the most registered parishioners, they're hanging from the rafters down in Assumption, Guadalupe, and right. they're yeah. The registration process doesn't happen with right. as much right. thoroughness there. So, right. but that would be a fun, that'd be a fun party. Let's get Wenceslas and <laughs> Our Lady Guadalupe together, and oh, be great. Some, that'd be amazing. Okay, so we want to talk a little bit as we're just now right entering into this this. Easter season. I just want to talk and reflect about it. I I have been captivated for a while now by one of the one of the lines that Jesus drops 
during Lent, right? It's from Luke's gospel, chapter 11. And the context is fascinating. Jesus, I love the way he continues and regularly defies expectations. One of the things that the story starts off, the quote says, when the crowds were increasing, which just that little phrase, at least for me, it's like, okay, cool. You know, when the subscribers were going up in the podcast, mm-hmm. when, when, the, uh, when more people were paying attention, good thing, coming to hear Jesus, when the crowds were increasing, you start to notice Jesus seemingly getting a little angsty mm-hmm. and he begins to be at pains to clarify what it really takes to enter the kingdom. And he seems to, you know, all the marketing folks, you know, Peter and the rest of the marketing team are like, no, don't say that. Uh, Because he seems to, when when the crowds are increasing, he tends to lean into his prophetic role or his his prophetic moments. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign shall be given it except the sign of Jonah. Which, of course, now as we're entering the Easter season, it's like, ah, the the resurrection is, we have Jonah, just reminding you of the story. Jonah, this this kind of wayward prophet, gets swallowed by a whale. He's in the whale three days. And when he gets spewed out on the shore, it's this kind of like new life-ish moment, which is a foreshadowing of the the resurrection. Jesus is... The resurrection is the sign of Noah for every generation, including ours. And that means that our own temptation to seek signs, if you will, that, well, that's a, that, that's perhaps not that it's bad to pay attention to miracles, but there's, there's something in the words that Jesus says to the immediate generation that he's speaking to that applies to us. Can you talk a little bit about that, Father? Yeah, what a, a complex human experience and spiritual experience that I think we all go through as we're growing in faith. I, As you asked me about my, um, my earlier years, I needed signs back then. I really did. And God gave them to me in, in abundance. And Still does today. Just today, Jim, I was driving back. I had some work to do at the Catholic radio station. I was driving back and just kind of, I don't know, feeling sort of tired. And I turned on the classical radio station here in Omaha and uh, the planets was playing. And I just so happened to be on the road at the exact time that the, oh, God beyond all praising melody came up. And I'm just this little moment of like, I, I, I call it a wink, like a wink from heaven, you know, mm-hmm. it just felt like just this little wink, like just the Lord loving on me in that little moment. So I need signs less now than I did back then when I didn't even know if God was real or if he was worth it. And so it's not, it's not sinful to seek a sign. In fact, God throughout salvation history has been pouring signs on us. I mean, just think of the Moses right. there was sign after sign after sign yeah. that was meant to increase the people's faith and to move them into a place where they no longer really needed a sign. So God knows where we are. And and here I think is Jesus sort of bringing this bigger crowd of, of mixed opinions and mixed people, bringing them to a deeper maturity in faith, to 
to a, to a more mature understanding of who he wants to be. Remember, Jim, like people were getting Jesus wrong all the time. They just thought mm-hmm. he was going to be some, some zealot. Not like now. <laughs> Everybody we all real every, Jesus now. Yeah. So glad we're not confused. Yeah. Even when he um, was, was in their midst in this way, in a bodily uh, way, as he was for those three years of his ministry, people didn't quite get him right all the time. Right. So here's Jesus saying, okay, <laughs> you're seeking a sign, but the sign that you're going to get, I'm going to give you a sign, but it's not the one that you're necessarily mm-hmm. anticipating. And and I would say the sign of, of Jonah is twofold. It's the piece that you said about definitely, you know, spending three night, three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, like Jesus hashes out later. So the son of man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But the other sign of Jonah that he alludes to in another part of the gospel was the sign of Jonah going to the giant city of Nineveh mm-hmm. and telling the people to repent. Mm-hmm. So, so that in itself was a sign. This one person sent to the masses, inviting them to repent. And what's beautiful is that the city of Nineveh responded. They responded in faith and they chose to repent. So mm-hmm. it's this twofold sign. The sign of being in the belly of the whale three days, three nights, just as Jesus would be in a tomb and, and come to be spewn out of the tomb, so to speak. He he rolled back the stone on his own, didn't need any help, and uh, rose from the dead. But then also the sign of the Son of Man, the sign of Jonah, that continues to be necessary in our midst, this, this sign of a call to repentance. Mm-hmm. And I look back at my own life, as I think all of us can. There was this moment where the Lord had to really bring me to my knees in my in my teenage years mm-hmm. to come to this place where I'm just like, okay, Lord, I'm ready to give up all this stuff that isn't healthy for me. I'm ready to give up all this stuff that drags me away from you. In other words, I heard and experienced the sign of the Lord's own invitation for me to repent. That's that's kind of the, the two sides of the coin here, I think. Mm-hmm. Father, that's that's super helpful because, you know, as you think about it, it's like the folks that Jesus is addressing this to, they've actually seen his signs, right? They, they've eaten of the multiplicated, is that the word, multi, the loaves that he multiplied, the multiplied yeah. loaves. He, he, right, they've eaten of those, they've seen the signs, and yet he's desiring to draw them deeper to himself, the resurrection as the premier sign. So here we are, right? We're in we're in the Easter season now. Like, how do we really receive that sign, uh, the the resurrection? How do we let that become a, a foundation of hope for us day by day? One thing that comes immediately to mind is the reality of the empty tomb. Hmm. Uh, I had the trip of a lifetime, the experience of a lifetime, uh, going to the Holy Land back in January of 2018. Hmm. And I got to spend the night in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is built around the empty tomb. And actually Calvary is also within that church. Calvary and the tomb are very, very close to each other. So there's one church built on top of both places. You got to Google it to kind of see how that that works out. Um, it's, It's confusing when you hear it. When you go there, it makes more sense. But there's this opportunity you can get sometimes if you know a guy where um, they'll let you into the into the church at like 7 p.m. and they will lock you inside 
and you can spend all night in the church. Okay, so this is not an accident, or this is not you hiding in the closet. This is a plan. No, 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 no. This was a, a privilege, I suppose, of being about to be ordained a priest and knowing some Franciscans in Jerusalem, I suppose. But they, they locked us inside, inside this church. And I got to spend, I mean, normally, if you go during the day to the church mm -hmm. where this empty tomb is, you can go inside the tomb for about 10 seconds before somebody yells at you. It says they, they just go, they go next. It's kind of, it's not the most prayerful thing in the world. I had the incredible opportunity to spend a little over an hour inside that tomb, the empty tomb on my knees. And I'll never forget what that was like. And I still go back there all the time in my prayer and in my imagination to just be in the empty tomb and to contemplate what that would be like to watch this dead, torn apart body of Jesus come back to life. That I'd never imagined that before, but like, what did it look like for, I mean, the blood came back into his body. Um, one thing I, oh, I have to bring this up in the podcast because I talk about this all the time. In the mass, Jim Jansen, in the mass, on the altar, when I consecrate the bread and the wine to become the body and the blood, that's meant to be a very visceral image because the blood and the flesh are separated from each other. Right. So that's what happens when you when you slaughter the lamb, you you bleed it out, mm -hmm. and you put the blood in a bowl, and you have the carcass of the lamb that you're about to sacrifice. That's what the Jews did for 1,500 years from Moses to Jesus. So on the altar, on the Catholic altar at every mass, you see flesh and blood separated. It's, it's the image of the death of Jesus. There comes this little moment right around the time that we either sing or speak the Lamb of God. And most Catholics don't have, have never noticed this before and have no idea what this means. But the Roman Missal tells the priest to break a piece of the host off and drop it in the chalice. Now, what in the world is that all about? Well, what's happening there? The flesh and the blood of Jesus are coming back together again. Hmm. We see that sacramentally. We see that happening on the altar. I try to make it as obvious as I can. I drop it from like a foot above so that you can <laughs> see it. That's the sign of Jonah. That's the sign of the resurrection. The flesh and the blood coming back together again. The Eucharist that we receive in the mass is the resurrected flesh and blood of Jesus, not just the dead Jesus, it's the resurrected Jesus. That's mm -hmm. that's the Eucharist that we receive and it's resurrected. And we, we see that every mm -hmm. time. So I encourage our listeners to look for that. Next time you're at mass, watch for that moment right around the Lamb of God where the priest drops a piece of the host into the chalice and, mm -hmm. and contemplate the resurrection. Gosh, that's that's beautiful. One of my favorite biblical stories is the road to Emmaus. And, you know, I feel like spoiler alert uh, for those of you, uh, the gospel tomorrow um, or the day we release this, um, the gospel coming up here for the octave uh, on Wednesday is the road to Emmaus. And again, spoiler alert, it ends with this beautiful Eucharistic moment. But the whole story ends up being kind of this image of the way Jesus likes to come alongside us, like how he behaves in his resurrected body. 
you know, his, his ministry, I think it was St. Ignatius, right? They call it, it's this ministry of consolation where Jesus loves to come and sneak up on people <laughs> during, you know, during the, the 50 days uh, that he's appearing to his disciples in Easter. Can we just, let's just spend a little time kind of reflecting on that together here. Father, start us off, set the, set the stage for people who aren't maybe real familiar with the story. This is Easter Sunday, by the way, an impossible amount of things happen on Easter Sunday in the gospel, but that's okay because Jesus is risen now. And if you read what Thomas Aquinas says about his risen body, uh, he can pass through locked doors. That's in the gospel. Um, he can do really miraculous things. He can go from place to place really, really quickly. Yeah, his efficiency just went up dramatically. I mean, he's like Absolutely. all over the place, literally. Oh, yeah. He deserves a raise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he Wait, he, just, so he just got a raise. <laughs> oh, what? 10 yeah. points on the yeah. dad joke. Okay, thank you. I have permission myself to do dad jokes now because I'm a spiritual dad. Yeah, um, why not? I do them from time to time. We'll see if we'll slip one in before the end of this episode. We're on Easter Sunday, and we know early in the morning that uh, Jesus was already risen. And we know all, remember the stories about Mary Magdalene coming to look for him. They've taken my Lord. She thinks she sees the gardener. He says to her, Mary, um, you know, all, all of those things that happen early, early in the morning. This is that same Easter Sunday, but it's later in the afternoon. It's kind of midday into the evening. And it says that very day, which is Easter Sunday, two of them, two of who? Two of the somewhat disciples of Jesus who were in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, by the way, mm -hmm. all the Jews, at least as many as could travel, would come to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. That's why they were there. But it, it seems that these two people in particular were following Jesus to some capacity because they knew a lot about him. We'll find mm -hmm. out in the story. But two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. So that's helpful to know, seven miles from Jerusalem. That might take, what does that take? Like if you're going leisurely, like two hours maybe to walk from one place to another. Does that sound right? Oh. You walk seven miles in two hours? I've been doing the treadmill more lately. I feel like. Uh, I think I walk like yeah, four miles that's a, an hour. That's about that's right. Sure. Walk. Let's just say so, that. Yeah. Like two hours or so. And. They were uh, talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So they, they saw something while they were in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And they had maybe a two-hour walk, and they were talking to each other. And then it says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. You can find some really interesting art having to do with the road to Emmaus and Jesus mm -hmm. Is going to look differently. And this keeps happening. I mean, Mary Magdalene, who spent three years with the guy, mm -hmm. didn't recognize him, thought he was the gardener. These two disciples, there's this random guy that shows up and they don't recognize him. Mm -hmm. And he just shows, I, I love, what's the word, what's the word you use before Jim? Like Jesus sort of like, just like pop, pops up, like pops in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's his, he loves surprising people. It's his ministry yeah. of consolation. I mean, think when we think of our stories jim like jesus surprised me when i was 16 Ex I was yeah not, exactly i was not expecting jesus to come busting into my life at that age especially at that age mm -hmm. um but he did and and i love hearing people's testimonies of like when jesus really surprised them and, and sometimes it can even be at like the most i don't know dark 
um, dark chapter of your life, when you least expect the Lord to break through, yeah, is often when he does. And I would add to that, you know, the story does describe them as, you know, two of Jesus' disciples. And just like you said, when you listen to them speak, they clearly knew him and loved him and knew the story. And, you know, I think we're used to hearing stories of testimonies where God breaks into someone's life by, by surprise and, and captures their, their heart. But it's like he still likes to do that even when we know him and we love him. He loves to come alongside us, like, it, like he does here, quite literally, comes alongside them and surprises them and shifts their perspective because you know, the, the part that you haven't shared yet is they're kind of discouraged. They're like, this is great. Yeah, great scene. You know, he's like, hey, what are you talking about? And, and then they start to, they're like, first, this hilarious moment in scripture, they're like, are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on? Which is hilarious because in reality, he's the only one who really does know what's been going on. Uh, nobody is more up to date on what's been happening the last couple of days than their fellow traveler, but they have no idea. So it's a really humorous moment in the scripture. I love it. But then they begin to relate this story. It's like, oh, it's Jesus. And, and it's like, it's this story of faith. They're like, oh, he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And, you know, we thought he was the, the Messiah. And to me, what I find even more astounding is not only do they begin to relate all the stuff, but, but then our leaders handing him over and Pilate crucified him. But then they keep going and they talk about the empty tomb. They, they, they're like, and there's some women from our group who, you know, who say they saw him. Unless we think it's just a kind of a sexist thing that they're just not believing Mary Magdalene. Then they're like, and two others, which of course we know to be Peter and John, which you would think would have the credibility for them. And like, and they, you know, and they say the tomb was empty too. But anyway, we're, and they're just kind of sadly walking away. Well, yeah, it said that, it said that they had stopped still and were yeah. looking sad. As they're yeah. sharing this, yeah, they went to the tomb and it was empty and uh, they were amazed at what they saw. And now we're walking home. I mean, so yeah. that's the other thing. It's like they clearly, they were with somebody that morning and yet they still chose to walk two hours home. Yeah, the fact that they like, yeah, yeah some people say, say he's alive and the tomb's empty. Uh, oh, it's just like, I, I love it because it speaks to, I mean, if you asked me, on a bad day where I'm feeling kind of sad, I would say, oh yeah, Jesus is alive and he's conquered all and he loves me and here I am and still kind of, mo and it's this, they, what they don't, they're not missing catechesis, if I can right, get a little nerdy for the, like what they're not missing a part of the story. They're not missing catechesis. What they seem to be missing is an encounter. And that's what Jesus goes out of his way to provide. It's so, uh, it's so beautiful. I love it. My favorite part of this whole story is Jesus's two questions, because mm. that's how he brings them into the encounter yes. is by asking them these two questions. The first question is nice. The second question is my favorite question in all of the Bible. And I love, I don't know about you. I love, love, love God's questions. Remember way back to the book of Genesis after Adam and Eve sin and they're ashamed and they hide themselves and they're the first thing God says is not like, 
cursed be you, or like, you know, God says simply, where are you? Yeah. And it's not because he needs to know. He already, he knows where they are. You, you never win playing hide and seek with God. Yeah, right, right. He knows that Adam and Eve need to hear that question and, and, and be asked that question so that they can acknowledge mm-hmm. where they are. Here in this story, the first question we hear is this. Jesus shows up and he says, what's this conversation which you're having as you walk? What are you, talk, what are you talking about? Asks Jesus. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus knows. Even throughout the gospel, it says that he, he knew their hearts. He, he knew the thoughts that they were having. He, he knows. He knows the interior movements in my heart. But he asks them, what are you talking about? Inviting them to sort of allow him into this conversation. Cool, cool question. I love that question. The next one is my all-time favorite question in all of scripture. Mm-hmm. They say to him, well, um, we're, are you the only one who doesn't know about these things that happen in Jerusalem? And his next question is, what sort of things? What sort of things? I love that. Because like when I go to the Lord in prayer and you know, I'm sharing with the Lord maybe how I'm feeling, I'll say something like, in my heart, I'll just say like, yeah, Lord, I'm just like feeling kind of, I don't know, kind of down today. And I can hear him ask the question, hmm, what, like, what sort of things? Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me more about that. What do you mean you feel down? And he, Jesus just brings this out of me. A similar thing happened. I have to share this story. My very first eight-day silent retreat through IPF, the Institute for Priestly Formation, Father Mark Toops mm-hmm. was my spiritual director. I was praying four holy hours a day, never done that before. And my first three hours were just like fireworks. Like I was praying with these passages and they were coming alive and just everything felt great. And then my fourth hour, I went to the chapel and I sat down and for 60 minutes, absolutely nothing happened. It was just the driest 60 minutes. Nothing was catching my attention. Nothing was coming alive. So I took my pen and I wrote in my journal one word, nothing, period. So I went to direction the next day and my spiritual director, Father Mark Toop said, tell me, tell me about your last 24 hours. And I was like, well, here's this holy hour and this, here's all these other things. And then I got to my fourth hour and nothing happened. And without missing a beat, he said, Ooh, tell me about the nothing. And mm-hmm. I kind of just looked at him and said, <laughs> I, don't know you, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, tell me about the nothing. I'm like, that's a cool question, Father. No idea what you're getting at here. He goes, what was the nothing like? I'm like, uh, kind of made me mad. Uh, kind of mad that you're asking about it, in fact. And he's like, ooh, why are you mad? So you see what he's doing? And then what, so, he, yeah. what he helped to reveal in my heart was this like pretty deep-seated unbelief in my own ability to pray and this deep-seated lie that like, oh, all all this is just kind of my own head or God's not going to show up for you in the way that you actually need. I mean, Mm -hmm. all of that came out of that one little question. Tell me about the nothing. That's like what Jesus is asking. What sort of things? Let And like, I'm just encouraging our listeners, let Jesus ask you that question. Let Jesus ask you clarifying questions because you will be amazed at what he can bring out of you. Mm-hmm. I love it, Father. I mean, this is this is why conversational prayer, uh, contemplation, right, is the the more kind of 
fancy schmancy name for it. Like mm-hmm. why conversational prayer, relational prayer is so essential because one of the things, I mean, you know, nerd alert, as you were talking was, you know, back to the second Vatican council, God even says that part of what Jesus does is he reveals man to himself. He reveals our own hearts to us. And one of the ways he does that is he asks us, he asks us questions. I love it. There's so many other incredible questions that Jesus asks in the gospel. You know, Thomas, have I been with you? Or was that Philip that asked that question? Have I been with, have I been with you so long? And you still yeah. don't know me? Well, and the one that comes shortly after this, I mean, I, I, there's the brief kind of insult. Oh, how foolish you are. Jesus does it. You know, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke. So there's a little, little, little loving reprimand in there. Mm-hmm. Then was it not necessary mm-hmm. that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I think he's he's trying to, you know, which then he follows up with a Bible study, kind of going all the way through Moses and the prophets, kind of nice, nice shorthand for the, the the Old Testament. Jesus is going back to what they would have known, you know, Isaiah, the suffering servant, that they would have known that well, it's not an easy job to be a prophet and that, you know, God's anointed, uh, you know, being God's anointed doesn't doesn't guarantee you an easy, happy life. And he reminds them of that and of the necessity of that writ large in his life. It's so true because, again, a lot of his disciples didn't get him. They thought he was going to mm-hmm. be this political zealot. They thought he was going mm-hmm. to just be a, a political figure. He wasn't a political figure uh, in and of itself. He, he was the lamb. He was the father's lamb that was sent to be slain, but not just slain in a passive sense, because he says elsewhere in the gospel, nobody takes my life from me, you guys. Don't don't get me wrong here. Nobody takes my life from me. No one's going to murder me because I'm here to lay down my life freely for you. I've been sent by the father as the Mm -hmm. lamb to be slain. He knew that from the beginning. He was prophesying that from the beginning. Simeon said that to Mary when she presented him as a little tiny baby in the temple. He said, a sword of sorrow is going to pierce your heart and your son will be a sign that will be contradicted. So, I mean, this was part of salvation history. Jesus came to be the lamb, but it wasn't this like pure victim because Jesus is victim and priest. Mm -hmm. No other lamb in Israel's history ever offered itself. It needed a priest to kill it and light it on fire. Mm -hmm. Jesus is the priest and the altar and the lamb and the victim and the he's all the things he's all the things i mean talk about everything converging in him uh he's the center of all history but he offers himself freely mm-hmm. knowing knowing how necessary that was to because oh jim i've been thinking about this lately like for 1500 years the israelites offered millions of lambs, millions of them at the Passover and other times throughout the year too. There were other sacrifices that they would make throughout the year. After 1500 years, God said, okay, that's it. One more lamb. But instead of you giving your lambs to me, I'm going to flip this upside down and I'm going to give my lamb to you. One last lamb, male, unblemished, young, 
I'm going to give him to you. And in the, I mean, this is what happens in the mass. A lot of Catholics don't understand the sacrificial nature of the mass. Mass is not just a prayer service. It's what we call the holy sacrifice of the mass. It's why there's a priest. That's why there's an altar. That's why there's vessels and vestments and incense. It's because this is a new experience of the last one perfect sacrifice of Jesus. This is the same Jesus that draws near to you and me and says, what sort of thing? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. What are you thinking about? How are you feeling? What sort of things? Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Father, talk a little bit more about the altar. I think people are comfortable, familiar with the idea of, you know, Jesus as the priest, Jesus as the lamb. But you mentioned earlier, Jesus is the altar. Can you explain a little bit more about that for us? Yeah, I'd say most people uh, hear that the cross is the altar. And that's not wrong. It, it definitely is the altar. Um, Jesus is offered for us to the Father on the altar of the cross. But in Jesus himself, the offering of our hearts is placed upon his heart to the Father. This is deep, mm-hmm. but I, I hope you can go with me here. We don't just offer Jesus back to the Father. We do. We do do that. Mm-hmm. But with him, we offer ourselves. I'm going to give to the Father every day when I come to the Mass, or every Sunday when I come to the Mass. Whatever is on my heart, I'm going to make an offering of my heart, an offering of myself, an offering of my family, my vocation, my stuff, my thoughts, my feelings, my desires, my memories, my will, my intellect. I'm going to make an offering of my whole self to the Father on the altar of Jesus. Mm-hmm. The, the, all, we need a, the Israelites needed a thing on which to offer the, the crops and livestock that they would offer to God. And they right. would light it on fire, by the way. They would put it on the altar and they'd light it on fire and the smoke would fly up into the heavens. That, that was the one way they could think to immolate the stuff they have and give it back to God and watch the sweet fragrant smoke or the probably disgusting smelling smoke sometimes uh, to watch the smoke float up into the heavens to, to, to meet the uh, divinity of God in the heavens. Well, yeah, the altar was that place where they could, like, they needed a place, they needed a location, a thing with which to give of themselves, the grain, wine, livestock, but to give of themselves, they needed that place. And Jesus Jesus is that place. The place, that's it. So like, we, we don't need, we don't need to offer him anywhere else, or we don't need to offer anything to the Father anywhere else, but through Jesus, everything we offer to the Father through, that's why we always say through Christ our Lord, through him and with him and in him. That's where our hearts are offered. You'll also notice at the Mass, I love all this symbology of the Mass. At the beginning and at the end of Mass, the deacon and the priest kiss the altar. There's actually a lot of kissing that goes on in the Mass. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you know that. Kiss the altar, kiss the book of the Gospels, kiss the altar again, all sorts of kissing. And Man, I gotta share this. I do lots of weddings, especially here at St. Wenceslas. Like I've got 18 couples that I'm preparing for marriage right now myself. Wow. And you know, the, what happens at the end of a wedding? We're standing in front of the altar, and the bride and the groom. I well, I introduce them, and they kiss, 
and everyone, everybody claps, and the music is playing, and they turn around and walk down the aisle, and nobody's looking at father anymore because they're all looking at the beautiful couple and the photographer, and they're playing this loud music. And they miss a really important moment where I turn around and kiss the altar of my bride. Mm. This spousal dimension that I get to share in as a priest. I'm not just a bachelor. I'm not just unmarried or single. I share in Christ's spousal identity. And so there's something about reverencing the altar as the church's place of sacrifice. We show that kind of reverence um, not to many things in my life, but to the altar as one. That's beautiful. Father, next wedding I'm going to, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to cheer all the way through <laughs> Father's no, kiss. You should cheer all over again when the priest kisses the altar. Yeah, I'm just going to, well, I was, okay, maybe I could do that. I was just going to like keep up the cheer the whole way through and hope that he okay. does it quickly. So, but we'll, we'll see. Well, that's, that is fantastic. That is really beautiful. And you know, it's not a coincidence as we, as we reflect on this story, it's not a coincidence that we keep talking about the liturgy. Could you break down a little bit? This story has a liturgical oh. framework in it. Uh, I don't think you need any encouragement, but like, go for it. Talk a little mm-hmm. bit about, again, for those who are familiar with it, but maybe have never seen, seen this liturgical framework in, in this story of, of the road to Emmaus. It, the, the mass happens in two parts, the liturgy of the word, and the liturgy of the Eucharist. So you could almost you could call it the, the feast of the word. We feast on the word. You got to think about all the, I mean, we confess our sins and we profess the creed. And then we spend those minutes sitting and listening to the word being proclaimed to us. That's meant to be a really contemplative time. And for some of our listeners, it is, and for some, it, it isn't, because you got kids crawling all over you. Or <laughs> as soon right? as you said that, I was like, "Well, it depends on your state in life." <laughs> it absolutely does. I or am whether or not your priest. child is asleep. <laughs> I, yeah, I get to sit up there in that presider's chair with my eyes closed um, the whole time. I I just get to contemplate on the word being proclaimed. It's not just being spoken; it's being proclaimed because mm. we're, we're there to receive it, like we're feasting on the word. And then that's why there's a homily, because the priest is meant to, to bring us deeper into the mystery of what we just heard. And then the creed happens on a Sunday, which is meant to be a response of faith to everything we've just heard. Similarly, with the petitions that we pray, that too is meant to be a response in faith of everything we just heard in the sacred scriptures. And we turn it into a prayer, a prayer of petition. That right there is the liturgy of the word. And it's meant to be a feast. I mean, they they can they call the ambo the table of the word sometimes. Mm. The ambo is meant to be, and, and if you read the liturgical documents, the ambo is not just meant to be some dinky little podium. It's meant to be a solid and legit place where the word is proclaimed. We're building a new church right behind me, in fact, here at St. Wenceslas. It'll be the newest church in Omaha opening uh, sometime this summer, we don't have a date yet, uh, mm. exactly. But the I just saw sketches for the altar and the ambo, and they are permanent. They are they're huge and they're stone, and they're made of the same material. The same wood and the same stone are being used to make the altar and the ambo. There's a huge connection there because we feast on the word, and then we feast on the word made flesh. That's what the Eucharist is. Mm. You know, as you were talking there, 
I had not noticed, you know, that there's this little connecting moment between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, where having heard the word, feasted on the word, we offer a petition. And the same thing shows up in the story. Again, for, for those who write, you know, the, the, Jesus has just gotten done. There's this beautiful conversation, these questions, this Bible studies. He takes them through this pattern of right suffering, preceding glory. And then there's this petition, which in some ways it's like, it is the perfect petition of all petitions. Stay with us. That they, they ask him to stay with them. And that's the hinge point both in the liturgy and in the story, they're like, stay with us. And then he does. And he begins this celebration of the Eucharist. He, he literally breaks bread with them. That's a prayer that I pray all the time to Jesus. <laughs> stay, stay with me and let me stay with you. I mean, that's what a, what a liturgical prayer. Again, that the liturgy is not just meant to be a flash in the pan. That's why we call it communion it's meant to be lasting. So what a great prayer to, to bring into your day. Stay with me, Lord Jesus, especially when we receive him in the Eucharist. Um, what happens in the story after he breaks open the word to them and, uh, you know, he, they invite him to stay with them in their home. And he, he comes into the home and they have this meal. And it says that he took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and then he vanished. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. Mm -hmm. And I just, oh, I think of especially the Blessed Virgin Mary and the apostles after Jesus was taken back up into heaven or went back up into heaven, ascended on his own mm -hmm. back up into heaven. There, there was this... I think natural sadness of not seeing and hearing him in the same way as they were used to. And yet they were given this opportunity every time they came together for the mass, which already existed in some primitive form after the last supper to recognize their Jesus in the breaking of the bread, mm -hmm. to, to see him and to sense him with their eyes. That's one thing that we as Catholics get to have and believe in very much is that Jesus, Jesus makes himself visible in the Eucharist. He means to make himself visible, that we could recognize him there. Well, and when they see him there, he's able to disappear. He's not needed as, as he's not mm -hmm. needed in the same way. Mm -hmm. And then they realize, I mean, right, their eyes are opened. He vanishes, and the I just love this. Did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us? I mean, this question came up. I, I want to ask our listeners. You could even pause the podcast right here after this question. When was the last time that you felt your heart burn within you? When have you felt that? that unmistakable divine fire at work inside of you. I mean, I shared before that little moment I had in the car today when that melody came on through my radio, my heart burned within me. All it was was a song on the radio, but it meant something so deep and it was such a piece of God's providence to me. When's the last time 
your heart burned within you because that was a time that you had a real and living encounter with the risen Jesus. That's good, Father. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's kind of where we, we start to wrap up because the, the story, it doesn't exactly end there. Um, I mean, in some ways you can say it just begins there hmm. because I, I love that they're, they, they run back to Jerusalem, presumably that they run. I think there's a beautiful metaphor there, uh, how what took them so long to stray away hmm. seems almost instantly recovered. It's this beautiful moment. It's like, you know, there's that Matt Marr song. You know, it's like, what do you need to do to repent, to return, to, to just turn around? I mean, there's this very beautiful, quick, uh, seemingly easy road back for them. Well, and can I also point out, I didn't yeah. realize this until I read it this time. Like, remember, they were getting home. It was evening. They've already yeah. walked two hours. They said, hey, come inside because evening draws near and we're going to have dinner and go to bed. And when this all happens, they're like, forget that. Like, <laughs> Everything else can go on hold. We're going to turn right around and go right back where we were. I don't care if it's evening anymore. Yeah. I mean, there, there was such an urgency. Yeah, they're drawn to the community and they've become evangelists, which again, I, I love, I, I think this is such a helpful model for us. Like, what does it mean? So, sometimes, you know, the, the question that I think has been a continued meditation, if you will, in the church over the last few decades is, how do we evangelize? Like, what's the deal with evangelization? Like, how do, how do people become missionary disciples? And there's all these, like, questions, and there's a lot of legitimate answers to that. But I think the road to Emmaus answers that question in really beautiful ways. Like, you, you let the Lord amongst disciples, you let the Lord sneak up on you, hmm. console you in your sadness and your heaviness. You, you let him remind you again of this pattern that, don't you remember? Suffering is a part of the plan, but it's okay it, because the glory is coming. And then after this encounter, ultimately then in this beautiful Eucharistic moment, you can't stop them. They have become evangelists and they run back and they're like, he's alive. It's really, it's really a fantastically hopeful, beautiful model, I think, for, for renewal in the church. Did you see the very next line after they're telling the other apostles what they had just seen? It says, as they were saying this, Jesus himself stood among them. Yeah. Them, Peace be with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. Well, they and just ran two hours back or two, I mean, seven miles back to Jerusalem. I can't run seven miles right now, by the way. I don't, I've never <laughs> run seven. I've never run seven miles. I can run a mile. Uh, maybe. Not right now. Uh, it's winter time. Kind of. It's yeah. coming out of the winter and I can't run. But <laughs> they, they run back and he pops in. He pops in again. But yeah. That's what he's like. Yeah. Well, and that, that's like, that's what he does when two or three are gathered. Hmm. That's what he does when, when this sign of Jonah, the resurrection is proclaimed. Um, that's what he does. He, did, boop, he shows up. Can we say something to our, our married men and women listening here? Um, Absolutely. This story is um, shrouded a little bit in mystery because it tells us who one of the disciples is, but not the other. It tells us that 
One of them was named Cleopas, but there was Cleopas's partner, friend, other person walking back to Emmaus who goes nameless. Um, notice a couple of things. They are traveling together to Jerusalem, just two of them. They're going back to the same house, by the way, at the evening time. They're going to stay together. So they could be siblings or they could be husband and wife. We hear in the Gospels that there was this woman hanging around, hanging around Mary and the other Marys and the apostles named Mary, wife of Cleopas. So we, we know that there is a Cleopas, and I, I mean, unless there's more than one Cleopas that's that close to Jesus, but there's this Cleopas and he has a wife who also was close to Jesus. So this could very well be a story about a husband and a wife. Mm-hmm. For those of you who are married, like read, read that in a new way. I, I want to give a shout out to uh, Luke and Haley Miller. They were the very first couple that I ever married. I was still a, a transitional deacon back then, but Luke is from Norfolk, Nebraska, and Haley is from right here at St. Wenceslas in Omaha. And they're now uh, focused missionaries out in Washington State. And they asked me when I celebrated their wedding if we could use this gospel within the context of perhaps these two people being husband and wife. And for Luke and Haley, who are disciple makers, Mm -hmm. um, very, very clearly and know who Jesus is. And I mean, that meant so much to them. And I, I even found an icon. You can find it online. Some nuns, I think, make this icon of Emmaus with a bride and a groom. It, wow. It's very clearly a man and a woman together. And I just, I mean, if that's true, that means the world for you married couples to have this story as an icon of what Jesus wants to do in your marriage. Yeah. I would struggle to relate to any moments of discouragement in the marriage, but mm-hmm. other than that, I know. <laughs> Jim, the cross is part of oh, the Oh yeah. It's, it's so <laughs> f- fantastic. And it really, I mean, it really is. I mean, it's the reminder. It just gently is like, did you, did you think it was going to be easy? But, but it's worth it. There's a glory here. There's a, yeah, this is the, this is the pattern. I mean, it is a self, yeah, it's a self offering. Uh, my wife and I, Kim and I, one of the readings we chose was the, um, the reading option from Ephesians because it highlights the self offering of the, in this case, the, the groom as a model, as a kind of a, a yeah, a model of, of Christ's self offering. So yeah, this is great. I'm going to, think about this and, and take it. And hopefully this has been this little kind of meditation conversation is going to be a gift for all of you who are listening. So we're called, we call this little podcast, the equip cast, because we want to equip you and give you some, some practical things to take into your life. This conversation is no exception. Father, give us a couple of practical takeaways for our listeners to, to put our conversation here, what we've been reflecting on, to put that into action. Yeah, as I as I go back to the Jonah story and and think of this reality of our kind of our our human nature to ask for a sign. Maybe just go back in your memory and try to remember a sign that you have received from the Lord. Mm-hmm. When was the last time, or even a time years ago, that you remember? this really clear 
moment of providence where the Lord spoke to you or that song came on the radio or you saw that thing and it was just like this, what I call that wink. It's just sort of Jesus winking, like, which is not, that's not unreal. It's very, very real that Jesus is always breaking into our human experience to give us little signs, concrete signs of his invisible love. So can you name in your prayer, can you name the last concrete sign of his love that you received? It might be something that changed your life and it might just be, you know, that little random thing that happened this morning, but that that was just a little, uh, Mm. that's so, I mean, gratitude, wells of gratitude in our hearts. Gratitude is a love detector. So like, when you're feeling grateful for something, you are detecting a concrete sign of God's love for you. Maybe it was just that cup of coffee you had this morning. Maybe it was the beautiful day that just happened the other day. Um, any of those things can be concrete signs. So just name that and stay, stay with it and savor it. Pray that prayer. Stay with us, Lord. Like, Lord, let me stay with this concrete sign. A second thing, I would I encourage every Catholic hands down, doesn't matter how old you are, to read the scripture readings for mass before mass. Mm. I started that when I, I think was 17 years old. I was still in high school and I just grabbed the little missile out of the back of the pew. And as I would go to mass like 10 minutes early and I would just read through the readings. And that way before mass, my heart already began to burn and the wheels already began to turn and I started to latch on to some piece of the scriptures that moved me at that given day and time. So I invite every Catholic, all my parishioners especially, to, um, to read the scripture readings, especially for Sunday Mass, to, to just read through those once before Mass begins. Maybe read it with your family the night before at dinner, or just even reading the gospel the night before. I'm really close to this group of religious sisters, the Handmaids of the Heart of Jesus up in Minnesota, and they always read tomorrow's gospel mm-hmm. as a prayer before dinner the night before. And I just think that's genius. That way you've got the evening and you've got the night to like already begin to, to chew on and meditate on what you're going to hear in the mass of the next day. And what's really, really fun is when the priest says in his homily the exact thing that was in your head or in your heart when you read the gospel. I, I mean, I remember that experience when I was on the other side of the altar in the pews. And oh, that was that right there was like, Lord, you're here. Like you're moving, your spirit is moving in all this. The third thing I would recommend as I think of these disciples who ran back to Jerusalem, ran back to that place of suffering where, where all that suffering had happened and went to witness what they just experienced to the other disciples. My encouragement is, I don't know where you are right now or who you're with right now, but I want to, I want to invite you and challenge you. The next person that you see, whoever that is, maybe it's your spouse or your kid or a driver or coworker, the next person you see, witness the good news to them somehow. Doesn't have to, you don't have to beat them over the head with something necessarily. Maybe it's just a smile. Maybe it's a, how are you? Good morning. Good evening. Um, Maybe it's a, hey there. 
maybe it's a, maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's going to turn into a conversation that you didn't think was going to happen. Know that you have the good news in you and make a conscious decision, the next person you see, to somehow witness to them the good news and watch, watch what the Holy Spirit does with that courageous decision of yours. That's fantastic. Father, thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for, feels like we went on a walk, like we just had a good, mm. good conversation there. Stay with me, Jim. Evening draws near. This is so good. Yeah, it's great stuff. Well, we'll, we'll have to do this again sometime. Again, uh, if you would like to uh, uh, connect to the EquipCast, you can find us on all the major uh, podcasting platforms. You can share this out with your friends and you can subscribe there. Uh, if you want to connect to the blog and the show notes, you can find us at equip.archomaha.org. Again, thank you, Father Taylor. Thank you for being, being with us. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you.